0: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to episode 32 of We Don't Talk About P-Word. Today we bring our commemoration of Hawaii's path to statehood to a close. Today, we make it to statehood. I have to say it's a little bittersweet for me ending this series. I've had a lot of fun with it and learned so much. I hope you feel the same. We ended last week with the passing of Queen Lili Uakalani. Native Hawaiians were not doing well. Their population had diminished and most lived in poverty. Many had lost their land following the Great Mahele and had little for themselves. Trying to address the loss of land for Native Hawaiians, Congress passed a new law. The Hawaiian Homes Commission Act went into effect in July 1921. It set aside 200,000 acres of land for Native Hawaiian homesteads. The law enabled native Hawaiians to return to their lands. It afforded them the opportunity to live self-sufficiently in Hawaiian tradition. The most controversial aspect was the requirement of at least 50% Hawaiian blood. Jonah Kuhio argued for a much smaller percentage. The HCCA was first administered by the federal government. It is still in effect today, though the state took it over upon reaching statehood. Since 1921, over 10,000 Hawaiians have been awarded homestead lots. Unfortunately, it is a slow process and there is a rather long waiting list. According to the agency, the demand began to outpace their ability in the 1980s. It turns out that much of the 200,000 acres are not suitable for development. As we discussed last week, the annexation of Hawaii was a boon for business. The influx of businesses into the islands increased the need for laborers. With the reduced population of the native Hawaiians, they had to look elsewhere. For most of the first decade of the 20th century, there was an influx of immigrants. The majority came from Japan, but there was also an increase in Filipinos, Koreans, Portuguese, and Puerto Ricans. Each ethnic group's pay was different. This was an excellent way for plantation owners to pit them against each other. It ensured they never took advantage of U.S. labor laws by uniting their efforts. This led to serious issues among the labor class in Hawaii. There were several strikes throughout the early 20th century. Unfortunately for them, racial tensions kept them from uniting to make a difference. In the 1920s, The labor movement was growing across the United States. A Filipino labor activist started the high-wage movement. The American Federation of Labor, or the AFL, supported the movement. The Hawaiian Sugar Planters Association, or the HSPA, ignored them. In response, in 1924, they proceeded to strike. To end the strike the HSPA used violence, the National Guard, and paid strikebreakers. They encouraged racism to belittle the strikers' concerns. They infiltrated the strikers' ranks and spied on their plans. They had strike leaders arrested to disrupt solidarity. They offered bribes for testimony against those leaders. In September, two strikebreakers were kidnapped at Henapepe. Heavily armed police were dispatched to free them. The police moved in to rescue the two strike breakers, but the strikers resisted. A violent exchange ensued. Before it was all over, 16 strikers and four policemen were dead. It also resulted in over 150 arrests and the strike leader's deportation. The strike achieved no success but it did highlight the police's willingness to use violent tactics to put one down. Also in 1924, Congress passed an Immigration Act. This law, for all intents and purposes, ended all Asian immigration to the United States. This act would govern immigration until 1952. Some historians believe that this act also ended the Japanese Democratic Movement. It resulted in a diplomatic estrangement which would lead to the attack on Pearl Harbor. The 30s hit the United States hard. The Great Depression reduced travel and settlement in Hawaii. Shortly after the overthrow of the kingdom in 1899, the U.S. Navy established a base at Pearl Harbor. Despite the Depression throughout the 30s, the U.S. military strengthened Pearl. Pearl. They built other new bases and built coastal defenses throughout Hawaii. This brought an influx of soldiers and sailors into Hawaii, boosting the economy. More importantly to the local white businessmen, it increased the white population. In 1935, Congress passed the National Labor Relations Act, the law guaranteed an American's right to organize. Once again, Filipino workers went on strike. At the time, Filipinos made up two-thirds of the labor force in Hawaii, which made them impossible to dismiss. The result of the strike was a 15% pay raise. In February 1938, the International Longshoremen and Warehousemen's Union went on strike. Their strike was against the labor practices of the Matson Line, the shipping branch of the Big Five. A ship was scheduled to dock on August 1st in Hilo, Hawaii. The strikers organized to protest the ship's docking. This could have serious consequences for all trade and it was a serious threat to the Big Five's bottom line. The protest was expected. The acting harbormaster closed the dock down, but only a few police were sent to secure the area. As the ship docked, Bystanders, including women and children, found their way to the docks. The unionists, seeing the bystanders, decided that if the public could be there, so could they. No effort was made to interfere or stop the work. Only jeers of scab and booze were heard. Tensions were already high when police lieutenant Charles Warren threw tear gas into the crowd. It exploded in the face of a young girl who had to be rushed to the hospital. The gas served only to disperse the bystanders. It had little effect on the protesters. They had trained and prepared for the police response. It escalated to fire hoses being turned on the protesters, but they still regrouped. They sat down, refusing to leave, but otherwise remaining peaceful by all accounts. The police were ordered to switch their rounds from buckshot to birdshot. For those who don't know, Birdshot is less deadly than buckshot due to powder, pellets, trust me, it is. But it still would hurt like hell and could be disfiguring. Again, the protesters were being peaceful. They were only lobbing jeers at the ship workers and the police present. Lieutenant Warren became agitated at the catcalls. He went out to confront the protesters and slapped one with the side of his bayonet. The protester, relaxing on the ground at the time, began to rise and Lieutenant Warren stabbed him in the back. He stabbed at another protester and then knocked out a third with a strike with the butt of his rifle. He fired a shot into the crowd which initiated a barrage from the officers behind him. The shooting lasted about five minutes and not all the police had switched to birdshot. When the dust cleared, all said... 50 people were shot. This included two women and two children. Obviously, there was also one stabbed and another with a broken jaw. Fortunately, no one died. It is important to note that at no time during the protest did the police attempt to arrest any protester. This day, known as the Hilo Massacre, or more accurately, Bloody Monday, would be a catalyst. It would lead to an end to races being turned against each other in labor matters, creating more cohesion. This strike would end with no gains by the Union, but there would be more strikes to follow. It would lead to a strong labor presence in Hawaii over the next decade. I really wish I had more time to talk about this event. Lieutenant Warren was a notorious character. His violent tendencies and ineptitude were almost comical, if not for their outcomes. I encourage you to look up more about this event, as it is both unbelievable and vaudevillian. As a teaser, I will say Lieutenant Warren attempted to give himself the nickname, Tear Gas Warren. Two years later, the date which will live in infamy occurred. On December 7, 1941, the Empire of Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. More than 3,000 lives were lost. For most of the next three years, Hawaii would exist under martial law. This means the military oversaw and controlled every aspect of life. This is not a situation that you would ever hope to be in. Of course, the Big Five ensured their advantages remained. They whined and dined military officials. The Big Five were always in the ear of the military when enacting territorial policy. Unlike on the mainland, Japanese-American internment couldn't be achieved in Hawaii. Japanese-Americans constituted about a third of the population of Hawaii. They would not have a place large enough to house them. More importantly, the Hawaiian economy would come to a halt, losing a third of its labor force. That doesn't mean that life was better. They were still treated with suspicion, and many were improperly imprisoned. After it was all said and done... No one of Japanese descent was ever found to betray the United States. Only one person, a German immigrant, was ever convicted of espionage. In fact, the sentiment was quite the opposite. Second-generation Japanese Americans, or Nisei, were eager to prove their loyalty. The military would not accept them into service. Those already serving in the Hawaiian National Guard could not be dismissed. Instead, they were sent to Wisconsin for training. Here, they became the 100th Battalion. They entered the fray in North Africa, and their motto was, Remember Pearl Harbor. By 1944, they had suffered nearly 800 wounded and killed. Had they proven their loyalty yet? In early 1943, the military opened enlistment to Japanese Americans, From this enlistment boom, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team formed. Two-thirds came from Hawaii, and the other third from the mainland. They reinforced the hundredth already engaged. In the fall of 1944, they would fight in the battle to rescue the lost battalion. This was a battle fought to rescue a battalion that had been recklessly deployed and cut off by German forces. In this battle, the 442nd suffered 400 casualties to save the soldiers of the 141st Regiment. In Italy, they led a decoy attack that would instead break the German lines. This would lead to the German army's surrender in Italy less than a month later. To this day, they are the most decorated combat unit in the history of the U.S. Army. Had they proven their loyalty yet? After the war, these veterans returned to Hawaii with their GI Bill. They would come to play an important role in Hawaiian politics. If you'd like to learn more about the legacy of these heroic troops, you can visit www.nvlchawaii.org. Following the war, tourism became a major aspect of the Hawaiian economy. Cruise prices were becoming more affordable. Airports built by the military during the war now facilitated travel to the islands. Tourism would grow from 15,000 visitors a year in 1946 to 150,000 a year by 1956. This new access also opened Hawaii up to Hollywood. The post-war movie era in Hawaii gave us such classics as From Here to Eternity and South Pacific. Another major component of the post-war Hawaiian economy was macadamia nuts. They had been imported to Hawaii from Australia in the 1880s. When the coffee market collapsed in the 1890s, macadamia groves replaced coffee fields. Throughout the early 1900s, planting macadamia nuts was encouraged, but it never took off. By the 1930s, the popularity of the nut Had led to more plantings, but they were still not commercially viable. In the 1950s, one of the Big Five recognized their potential for profit. The first commercial harvest of macadamia nuts occurred in 1956. The United States became the world's leading macadamia producer until 1997. Now comes the moment we've all been waiting for. We are in the homestretch. Before the war, Two-thirds of voters in Hawaii supported statehood. There had been several attempts before the war that had gone nowhere. The first bill had been introduced in the House in 1919, but it died in committee. The quest, stalled by the war, resumed in earnest in 1947. The labor class and the Asian population led the push, looking for the full rights of citizenship. The Hawaii Statehood Commission was founded to push statehood in Washington. Bills would pass one House of Congress in 1947, 1950, 1951, and 1953. None passed in both. The oligarchy that was the Big Five grew concerned. They knew that statehood was a threat to their power. They would have preferred to remain a territory forever. By this point, their power was being threatened anyway. Unions were beginning to gain power by uniting the different races of the labor class. A major strike occurred in 1949 that halted all trade in and out of Hawaii for six months. The Big Five found themselves in untenable positions that demanded they negotiate. But it wasn't as easy as this side favored annexation and the other didn't. Native Hawaiians did not support statehood either. They knew that the monarchy had been illegally overthrown and did not want to join the United States. Southern congressmen in the U.S. were also against statehood. They feared the non-white majority in Hawaii would vote in favor of civil rights matters. McCarthyism also slowed the movement. It attacked union leaders claiming they conspired to overthrow the U.S. government. In June 1952, Congress passed an Immigration and Nationality Act. This law would have profound impact on Hawaii. It allowed for people of Asian descent to become citizens. More than 30,000 Japanese immigrants in Hawaii were now eligible to seek citizenship. Before you begin to praise Congress, understand that it was self-serving. Since World War II, the U.S. has sought the expansion of trade to the Far East. Congress realized that it would be easier with Asian-American intermediates. The Cold War also softened our views. Being more welcoming lessened the possibility of their embracing communism. In 1954, with an influx of new voters, the Democrats took control of the Hawaiian government. It would become known as the Democratic Revolution of 1954. The oligarchy watched their power fade. By 1954, nearly 80% of Americans on the mainland supported Hawaii statehood. Some Republicans supported it because of its location. Southern opposition had weakened over pressure from statehood advocates. Unfortunately, there was another territory linked together with Hawaii. Alaska, purchased in 1867, was still not a state. Many felt Alaska's population was not large enough to warrant statehood. Others believed Alaska did not contribute enough to the economy. Its biggest roadblock had been the same as Hawaii's. Its primarily non-white population scared racists. Also, like Hawaii, World War II proved Alaska's strategic importance. But it wasn't until oil was found that statehood became an option. For as long as they were territories, the fates of the two were entwined. If one was granted statehood, the other had to follow. In 1956, John Burns, a Democrat, was elected as Hawaii's delegate to Congress. He won without the support of the white vote, a first in Hawaii. Upon his arrival in Washington, D.C., he began an effort to push for statehood. His success is highlighted by bringing two pivotal Southern Democrats to his side. These were Senate Majority Leader Lyndon Johnson and House Speaker Sam Rayburn. Johnson would of course go on to be president following Kennedy's assassination. Rayburn was a well-respected leader in Congress. Today, members of the House of Representatives have offices in a building named in honor of him. On July 4, 1958, the two territories were decoupled, paving the way to Alaska's statehood. In January, it would become our 49th state. With Alaska's admission, we were merely on a countdown to Hawai'is. In March, President Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican, signed the Hawaii Admission Act. In June, a referendum on statehood in Hawaii passed overwhelmingly. Only the small island of Nihau voted against it. Ni was only populated by native Hawaiians. The year? 1959. The month? August. Miles Davis, a legendary jazz trumpeter, released Kind of Blue. Many consider it to be the greatest jazz album ever recorded. NASA's Explorer 6 sent us the first images of the Earth from orbit. Spoiler alert, it wasn't flat. Little Rock, Arkansas was reopening high schools after a year lost to a racist attempt to stop integration. The American Football League was announced to begin play in 1960. Throughout Hawaii, bells rang to celebrate statehood. Daniel Inouye was elected as Hawaii's first representative to the House. Inouye was a Nisei and had served with the 442nd Regimental Combat Team during World War II. In his service, he earned the Medal of Honor for his assault on a German machine gun nest. He would also lose his arm in that action. Sadly, it took until 2000 for us to acknowledge his sacrifice with the Medal of Honor. He became the first Japanese American to serve in the House of Representatives. He would also become the first in the Senate upon his election in 1962. In his 58 years in politics, he never lost an election. He served as a senator, rising to President pro tempore until his death in 2012. He would be the highest-ranking Asian American politician in U.S. history until 2020. This changed with the election of Vice President Kamala Harris. Hiram Fong was one of Hawaii's first two senators. Fong was a Chinese American. Fong was a lawyer and had served in the prosecutor's office in Honolulu. During the war, he served in the U.S. Army Air Corps as a judge advocate. To date, he holds the distinction of being the only Republican senator from Hawaii, although he was a moderate Republican of the time. He often sided with Democrat Lyndon Johnson. He would serve three terms. Orrin Long was elected the other senator from Hawaii. Oren was born in Kansas and moved to Hawaii in 1917. He worked as a social worker and in various educational positions, including superintendent. In 1951, he was appointed territorial governor. From 1956 to 59, he served in the territorial senate. Due to the way senate terms are determined, he served three years and chose not to run again. Until 2012, he held the distinction as the only non-Asian senator from Hawaii. Statehood did not solve all ills. You might think that once statehood was achieved, everything was suddenly better. To this day, there are still those who want to see a return of Hawaiian autonomy. A Hawaiian sovereignty movement looks to reinstate the monarchy. Many native Hawaiians are still very invested in the return of their kingdom and culture. The U.S. government has not forgotten either. In 1993, a joint resolution of Congress issued an apology to the Hawaiian people. The resolution said, among other things, The Congress apologizes to Native Hawaiians on behalf of the people of the United States for the overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii on January 17, 1893, with the participation of agents and citizens of the United States and the deprivation of the rights of Native Hawaiians to self-determination. There has been other legislation introduced, but nothing has gained any traction. Before we conclude the story of Hawaii's path to statehood, we must discuss context. It's important to note the political climate in which the kingdom existed. This in no way justifies what took place. But in the interest of full disclosure, it is an important aspect of the situation. It is one that I must at least note. As I said in a previous episode, the end of the Kingdom of Hawaii was inevitable. The powers of the mid to late 19th century were a hungry bunch. In the story of Hawaii alone, we saw France and Britain encroach on Hawaii. We talked about the United States expanding in several directions. We even discussed Germany's move against Samoa. Those are only a few of the many imperialist moves of the time. The great powers wanted land, resources, and money. We didn't even talk about the Dutch, the Russians, or the Chinese. I am no seer, but based on my understanding of history, I can make an educated guess on how things would have played out. I have not hidden my belief that the fall of the Kingdom of Hawaii was a foregone conclusion. The only questions were when and by whom the United States' attention likely allowed the Kingdom of Hawaii a longer life. Without the U.S., Hawaii would have found it harder to resist aggressive forces. At the time, Japan was in a period of growth. Like other powers, it sought to expand its imperialist interests. The number of Japanese immigrants in Hawaii alone made it attractive to Japan. But even before the Spanish-American War, everyone recognized Hawaii's strategic benefit. Hawaii was absolutely on Japan's radar. Had the kingdom survived until World War II, Hawaii would have become a battleground. As it is, Hawaii suffered the worst surprise attack in military history. This could have been much worse. Hawaii would have become a brutal battleground until someone gained control. Even then, it wouldn't have been over, It would have remained an active war zone. Japan controlling an island that close to the U.S. would have been unacceptable. The Japanese would not have given it up easily, and neither would the U.S. Hawaii was a perfect invasion point of the U.S. The only reason Hawaii was protected was because of the massive U.S. military presence. That and the attack on Pearl Harbor failed to achieve its goal. Yes, if you didn't know, the attack was a failure due to U.S. aircraft carriers not being in port at the time of the attack. Without a large military presence in Hawaii, World War II might have gone differently. That is, if the kingdom even lasted until World War II, chances are it would have been conquered sooner. There is no denying that without U.S. interest in Hawaii, the world would have been different. I have even read a theory that postulates without Hawaii, Cuba would have ended up the 50th state. This in no way makes what happened right, but it is important to note the context of the time. Without understanding context, it's impossible to understand history. Over the past seven episodes, I have diverged from our typical format. I wanted to tell a story of government overstep. I wanted to show the government that we inherited. I wanted to highlight the dangers of corporatism and partisanship from our history. But this story became so much more. At least, it did for me. When I was serving in the Marines, I had two separate opportunities to be stationed in Hawaii. Both times, I couldn't for different reasons. I must say that I wish I had been able to live there, even for a short time. Though I doubt I would have appreciated it at the time. A story that I expected to take only a few episodes to tell grew as the story unfolded. As much about our history as I knew, I was surprised by some things I uncovered. To be honest, Hawaii became a bit of a passion project for me. The more I researched, the more I wanted to know. In the interest of complete transparency, this one got away from me a little bit. I realized that I owed Hawaii more than a quick overview. The people who were characters in this story deserved more than a quick overview. The unethical actions of those involved demanded more than a quick overview. But as I pointed out in the first episode, there was so much more that I left out. There was so much more that I didn't have time to talk about. There were so many lives lived before entering the Hawaiian political stage. Interesting people, interesting events, interesting places. With that in mind, I want to take a second to highlight a few of those people and events. I'm hoping you might be interested in learning more about them. Here are just a few interesting people, places, and events I was unable to discuss. Bernice Bishop, Princess Kaiulani, Emma Rook, Hawaii's struggle with leprosy, the Royal School, and the birth of the Hawaiian written language. People I discussed but couldn't do justice include Queen Uakalani before her ascension, Robert Wilcox, and the first two Queen Regents. You can download and read Queen Uakalani's memoir for free, and I highly recommend it. I wanted to share this story to highlight the injustices of partisan politics. Too often, we look at our past and think, Man, if only it wasn't for that time we had slaves, the U.S. would be perfect. We like to believe that slavery is our only blemish. The point is to show you that our government, directed by partisan players, has more than its share of warts. This does not mean the United States isn't great. This doesn't mean you can't love your country. I'm not even telling you to be ashamed. There is so much about the United States to be proud of. The United States is an ideal in its existence, if not in its function. It is aspirational. As long as we strive to achieve the lofty goals of American values, we have much to be proud of. It is only when we become complacent that we should be ashamed. The further I got into my research, I realized this story was more than one of government overstep. Hawaii is the story of an indigenous culture nearly ended by contact with the West. It is the story of religion corrupted to fit a narrative. It is the story of corporate and political elites using propaganda to seize power. It is the story of partisan, ineffective government that allowed it all to happen. Hawaii is a microcosm of American politics. Hawaii is the story of the United States. More importantly, Hawaii is a cautionary tale. It must be told. It must be understood. It must be remembered. Let's forget for a moment that annexation was not constitutional. (laughs) Just kidding. What? Did you think I was just going to gloss over that fact? The Constitution defines the procedure for ratifying treaties. The President negotiates and the Senate ratifies. The House has no role in international treaties. A joint resolution is not an appropriate or even legal way to annex a foreign nation. Consider impeachment for a second. According to the Constitution, it is the job of the House to impeach. It is the job of the Senate to convict. Like treaties, it requires a two-thirds vote to do so. Imagine if the House knew that the Senate wouldn't vote to convict. Instead, they introduce a joint resolution to convict, and it passes by a simple majority. I won't even continue this thought exercise. This country would explode into a constitutional crisis. But it would be a crisis with precedent. The annexation was even considered unconstitutional at the time. Unfortunately, those who thought so were not in power. On June 15, 1898, Congressman Thomas Ball from Texas put it best during a debate on the House floor. The annexation of Hawaii by joint resolution is unconstitutional, unnecessary, and unwise. Why, sir, the very presence of this measure here is the result of a deliberate attempt to do unlawfully That which cannot be done lawfully. But let's ignore that fact for the rest of this episode, you know, like the politicians of the time. The story of Hawaii was a slow moving coup from the moment Cook set foot there. Its fate was sealed. Its bountiful land and resources, its perfect climate, its strategic location, it was all too attractive to ignore. It is paradise, after all. Corruption of religion allowed them to assert their moral superiority. The admonishment of Hawaiian culture as savage or pagan legitimized their cultural genocide. Too many Americans had no empathy for those with darker skin. They looked on as their brethren worked their mischief. Profits and cheap products were all they cared about. Americans in Hawaiian clothing conspired to control this paradise. They introduced its people to democracy. For a nation of people who believed in the sanctity of life, it was a natural fit. For the wolves, it was a way to corrupt. The Hawaiians took counsel from their friends from the United States. They called for their help when wolves were at the door. They never noticed the predator standing next to them. Land was taken, not by force, but through legislation. Reckless spending encouraged... Bad decisions supported. Money bought you access. Through propaganda and bad counsel, the scorpion ready to strike. The economy, controlled by oligarchs, made the nation ripe for picking. Money made its move. They forced a new constitution, but were surprised when the Hawaiians didn't fall in line. Propped up by a corrupt American minister, they threatened violence. They knew it would never come to that. The insurrectionists knew they were safe. Hawaiians knew they had no chance. The sanctity of life won out. The Kingdom of Hawaii surrendered. Make no mistake, this was not about joining the United States. This was about profit, wealth, and nothing more. Look no further than President Cleveland's demand they return the throne to the Queen. Their answer was no. The oligarchs said, The United States holds no power here, but please, annex us so we can enjoy free trade. Accept us as we are, or we do our own thing. Even more proof came after annexation. There was no push by the Big Five for statehood. Statehood would diminish their power. Statehood would diminish their profits. But let's not forget about racism. Racism in the U.S. government provided them cover. Racism in the islands kept the oligarchy in power. Until it didn't. As the people realized their power was in numbers, the tide began to turn. As we realized that America is beset by a class war and not a race war, things began to change. Hawaii began to change. The Kingdom of Hawaii was a small nation. On the stage of human history, it lasted only a short while. Hawaii's size allowed the corporate political agenda to impose its will faster. The lessons learned from America's founding allowed the oligarchy to rise quickly. Keep the people out of the equation. The United States as a nation is no different. Because of our size, it moves slower, but the tide is moving against us. The would-be oligarchs work to seize our power. The corporate elites work to belittle the people's government. The political elites work to tear it down from within. And the people look on. The people say, it can't happen here. The people say, politics is boring. The people say, but my party says unions are bad. The people say, I don't have time. The people do nothing as democracy wanes. From Queen Lili Uakalani's own words during her trial for treason, If we have nourished in our bosom those who have sought our ruin, it has been because they were of the people whom we believe to be our dearest friends and allies. She knew what happened. The monarchs of Hawaii had all feared it. If we aren't careful, it will happen to us too. The parties, the corporations, they aren't our friends. They aren't our allies. They don't care about us. They are wolves in the people's clothing. It is up to the people to unmask them. It is up to the people to put them in their place. It is up to the people to exert their power. If we don't, we are just serving an oligarchy. As I have said, this story became a passion project for me. It indeed got away from me a little bit, but I'm glad it did. The story of Hawaii is so important to American history. We must understand how we have treated weaker nations. It highlights the dangers of rejecting American values. Liberalism and conservatism aren't the problem. The problem comes when the two become the agenda instead of the means to achieve American values. We were founded on specific values. It is not the right of political and corporate elites to question those values. It is their job to protect those values. It is their job to ensure justice. It is their job to ensure a fair and peaceful nation. It is their job to protect the people from foreign and domestic threats. It is their job to ensure the people's rights to life and promote the general welfare. It is their job to ensure that the people enjoy equality. It is their job to ensure we have access to the American dream and the privacy to live the life we choose. These are the values promised by our founding documents. These were the values ignored in the conquest of Hawaii. I hope you have all enjoyed this commemoration of Hawaii's path to statehood. I hope that it gives you something to think about. Most of all, I hope that I was respectful of the Hawaiian culture. To all Americans... I wanted to share this cautionary tale. I wanted to remind everyone that American democracy depends on us. Only together can we stop the oligarchy's rise. To the people of Hawaii, I want to say this. I am sorry about how you got here, but I am sure glad to have you in the Union. We the people are the power. Before I go, once again, I want to note the disaster in Maui The people of Lahaina are in desperate need. Please consider helping if you have the means. Related to this, I would also like to draw attention to the native Hawaiians and what comes next. Though the native Hawaiian population has been rebounding, it is still a very small population. When it is all said and done, the native population on Maui will be greatly affected by this disaster. I truly hope that they are remembered when it comes time to rebuild. I hope that our government will not ignore our fellow Americans in their struggle as we did when their nation was usurped. It is up to us to hold them to a higher standard. Thank you for joining me on this special journey to explore Hawaii's path to statehood. I hope you enjoyed it. More importantly, I hope you learned something. We will return the week of September 3rd with the official launch of Season 2. Until then, please head over to www.talkpword.com and subscribe to be reminded when new episodes drop. You can also like, follow, and share on X and Facebook to stay informed about new episodes. Any questions or comments can be directed to talkpword at gmail.com. Until next time, qui ipsos custores. Populus facere.